you know, and in the spirit of candor, I've got to say, when I first walked in and I saw you yeah. smiling from cheek to cheek, yeah. I thought it was just your excitement. But now yeah. I realize it's also all that Botox and fillers that Calvin's injected into I, your face. You know what? There's been no <laughs> fillers, perhaps a little bit of Botox, but mostly laser. Because I'm getting like, old. Okay? I thought he was drunk. I mean, he's <laughs> like redder than. So, like, what does the, so what does the laser do? Laser makes your skin more lasery. That's what Calvin tells me. I wow. pay him a lot of money. More lasery. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. what you can all you can come up. Yeah, do I even exactly. ask you Who's how Calvin? much you spend? Can you get on with the show? Let's can we get it. on with the show? Let's do it. Or shall we talk about your dating life? No, I think we should introduce our <laughs> esteemed guest. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to perhaps the most exciting podcast we have ever done on the Unreasonable series, starring none other than Vishal Harnal, a partner at 500 Global, Michael Blakey of Cocoon Capital, myself, Hiengo of Open Space Ventures, and joining us today, special guest star, we managed to capture him in real life, the Right Honorable Ko Boon Hui. Welcome to the Unreasonable Podcast. <laughs> and I have absolutely no idea when I became Right Honorable. <laughs> it's, a, it's about to get a lot worse. He's been very excited about have, this. This is the most excited I've actually seen him. Yeah, yeah. Ever, I think. And I'll tell you why. And we never really had captured somebody who, in my opinion, has done a lot, a lot more than the three of us. And Boon Hui has actually um, agreed to do a podcast. And from what I understand, Boon Hui, this is the first time you're actually doing a podcast. I have, I, the only reason I agreed to do this is because I had absolutely no idea what a podcast was. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so we'll drag you into the, the, the podcast, uh, you know, thing. And uh, the whole aim of the Unreasonable Podcast is to be very candid and to make fun of everybody else. All right, for those of you who do not know who Ko Boon Hui is, he's someone that we really, and I'm gonna embarrass you, uh, highly regard in the ecosystem because you are the OG of the investing scene. I remember when I first started many, many years ago, we always hear, oh yes, and this one has been invested by Ko Boon Hui. And the other one's been invested by Ko Boon Hui. And we're like, who's this Ko Boon Hui? How come we never meet him? And how come he's invested in so many startups? Bunhui, how many startups do you think you've invested in the decades that you've been doing this? I don't actually count them, but probably a couple of hundred. Couple of hundred. Can you remember that? What was the first one that you ever invested in? The first one in Singapore, because there, there, there are also investments elsewhere. The first one in Singapore was a little company called Galtech. Galtech? Hmm? <laughs> what does Galtech do? They make PC boards. Oh, wow. wow. In 1990... 1980s. 1980s. Whoa. Okay, hold yeah. that thought because for the listeners here, this is what I mean by why Hien's excited because Boonhui has been such a, a, a you know indelible mark in the ecosystem in Singapore and yet not everybody knows who he is because you've been generally trying to hide but if someone were to Google you, we would know you as the Roger Federer of corporate Singapore because you've been, <laughs> get this guys, listen, to, you've been the chairman of Singapore Telecom, DBS, Singapore Airlines, and you're currently the chairman of the Singapore Stock Exchange. So, you know, the rest, I think you can Google, but this is a gentleman that we've managed to capture on the Unreasonable Podcast, and boy, are we gonna interrogate him for all his wisdoms. And all of those appointments have got nothing to do with venture capital and startup. <laughs> no, I guess it shapes your view. You know, one of the things that immediately strikes me is that when we think about 
VC in Singapore and Southeast Asia. In our minds, that story is always always started in 2013, 14, yeah. during that era. But that's true. You've been investing since the 80s in technology companies over here, and that is yeah. Well, but it was very, it's very different in the 1980s and 1990s. Out of a out of 10 investments, eight or nine were in Silicon Valley. Wow! It wasn't until the middle of the t- 2010 onwards. That he started investing over here, yeah, more seriously. So, what was Galtech that he invested in in the eighties? They were a PC board manufacturer in Singapore. Yeah, PC board. But then you know you had all the Taiwanese guys and all these uh, multi-tech, you know, a lot of people. So, what did you see in that company? Uh, they, that- they all they they all came up at approximately the same time. And believe me, these were multi-layered PC boards. You know, the PC board started off with two layers, right? Yeah, back and front. Then somebody decided that they could, uh, with the proper interconnects or so yeah. whatever it is, you could have multiple layers. And at one point in time, the Galtech company in Singapore was one of the few in the world that could do eight to ten layers. Okay, so it, was it that that made you say, okay, I'm going to invest in this company, or was it the fa- so talk us through why that company was one that you you said, okay, I'm going to enjoy? I knew the management; they were growing fairly rapidly, and. Well, in the old days, you know, if you're an angel investor, twenty-five thousand dollars is a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why you could get started. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because wow. I mean, you're working, you're working for HP. That they didn't pay you pay that, that well. <laughs> yeah. So you you were still at HP at that point of time. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's actually so, how you get started because HP at that time was an extremely entrepreneurial company. Okay. Everybody was an entrepreneur. We need to un- within that company. We need to unpack this because at one point in time, someone told me that HP like hired like two thirds of the tech people in Singapore. I mean, HP was a huge force. Oh, a huge employer. Okay, absolutely. And as so, and I used to go back to Silicon Valley every month. This was before Zoom and all that wow. sort of good stuff. Yeah. You go back every month for the staff meeting for. You turn around. How would you then, fly that? Yeah, yeah. I was just about to ask before the direct, direct right? How, like, how did you did you go through London, Hong Kong? No, oh, Hong Kong. Yeah. You went through Honolulu. Love it. Oh, that's a hard life, right? I wish they had that flight. I mean, we we all sort of loved it because do a stopover. That's right. You would arrange. You would arrange to. Hit Honolulu on the way back on a Friday, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which Vishal does. You know, he hits okay. Dubai. Yeah, right. Very funny. But from, <laughs> those from, were those were the times when the planes were seven oh seven. Oh my goodness! Wow. So wow. they yeah. didn't have the range, yeah. which is why you stopped in Honolulu. And then, of course, when the when the better planes came along, yeah. whoop, oh. Honolulu was Honolulu was gone. Of course, gone. Was a real pity. But from that first investment, I remember from my first investment, I I made many mistakes and I learned a lot. What were the key learnings that you took away from from that investment, which you've kind of even today or did any? Well, I was very fortunate with that yeah. investment because it actually did quite well. Okay, but I would also have to say that you know, exiting is a really important part of this thing in my view because <laughs> obviously things catch up with you and.、Um, Eventually, Galtech got sold and was absorbed in by a larger company in the technology business. The minute you fall behind in technology, you're toast.、Yeah. 
Okay, yeah. so that's what you mean by things catch up with you. Yeah. So, so other people started having eight layers and nine layers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So then, how? So how did you tell the management team? Hello, you're not like the eight layer cool like time to sell. Oh no, 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 no. The reason is because it, it, it went public. So ah. I, I view my role as an angel investor. Oh, done. Incredible. Yes. Yeah. yeah. My role as angel investor is that when it go, when there's a liquidity event, you're out. Take it because. If you think all of a sudden that because you're an angel investor, you also happen to be good at managing public equities, mm -hmm. you're dead. <laughs> See, that's what we wanted to hear. Yeah. For the, <laughs> do, do you hold that philosophy to today? Yes, up to today. Amazing. So I'm completely out of razor because they went public. Wow. That's and interesting. If they, if they have a further right, and you could be totally wrong, right? Because yeah. you, you, could have been a, you could have been a sort of like an angel investor in Google. And Google did a lot better after, after. but that's somebody yeah. else's money to make. Yeah. Yeah. I love yeah. that. No, I, look, I think, uh, okay, my, I, Boon Hui's right. You know, we all have a capital stack to play. Yeah. And you know, once companies go public as a venture capital fund, you do have an obligation to either sell the stock or return the stock in specie. Uh, but you know, Bunhui, maybe just to unpack a little bit for the listeners. You've been involved in Razor for a very long time. Uh, Razor's uh, one of the leading success stories. Curious to know, how did you get involved with Min Liang and, uh, and the team there? He actually wrote an email, a cold email, and I responded to it. Oh, okay. Wow. It wasn't Carling who introduced you. It was literally... No. I can't remember the exact thing, but I remember it was a cold email, and I didn't know Carling until I got involved with Razor. Oh, wow. Yeah, so okay. it wasn't the other way around. Oh. So, you know... That's okay, interesting guy. So I responded to the email. Wait, and wait, met. how did you determine he was an interesting guy from a cold email? The way the email's written, I can't remember okay. exactly how it is. Oh. But actually, it's not that unusual. I respond to a lot of cold calls and emails. Yeah. First time. Yeah. Then what was the conversation there? Well, I was very impressed with him as a person, to be honest. Hmm. You know, he was. Uh, very determined, very passionate, uh, can be very stubborn, yeah. <laughs> but it's a vibe. Ah. You know, I think it's uh, kind of old fashioned nowadays, but I tend to bet on people rather than the analysis that you guys do. <laughs> Oh, we, we do that to justify our existence and to make you reassured as <laughs> yeah. an investor, which I can neither confirm or deny that you're um, But yeah, I mean, we all agree to that, right? It's, it's Absolutely. Certain like, people. It's what, what, what happens when you bet on the person, but a tsunami hits or, you know, you they're just on the wrong side of the trend. You right? know, that sometimes happens. You know, you can't control everything in the world. You can have the best people in the world and you happen not to be structured correctly and you happen to be in the hospitality startup and COVID <laughs> happens, yeah. you're dead. Yeah. I don't care how good you are. Then what, what do you say to that entrepreneur? Because that, that person's going to come to you and go like, Boon Hui, hey, how are we going to do this? Right? So, yeah. so what, what, do you, what do you say to that? Fold and think of something else to do. Wow. Just there we go. Yeah. Your opportunity. Fold that thing. Yeah. Wow. It's dead. I agree. I, I think like one of the muscles that doesn't exist over here to the degree it exists in the Valley and you must have seen this as well is that entrepreneurs are more willing to move on to the next project and it doesn't exist over here. Right. Like yeah. I think failure in some ways do you penalize then, still. 
if that founder comes back to you and says, "I'm going to do another thing," do you then back him again or her again? Yeah, very often. Have you done that before? Multiple times. Actually, I know the answer because I know of you because yeah. who, you, who actually have had that uh, experience, right? Yeah. And do you care about what they're building in the next iteration, or are you still betting on them as people and what they're gonna? I do care to? about what they are building on the next system, but okay. I mean, if you, generally speaking, if you know the person well enough, and if he tells you what he's gonna do, you feel I have no out. absolutely no problem saying here and there's a damn stupid idea. <laughs> <laughs> Then you won't invest in Mila. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think so he's talking specifically. I'm just yeah. going to send you back so that you think of a better ah, thing to do. You see, what is the role of a chairman, and what is a good chairman, or what do you aim to do to try to be a good chairman in a public company? Okay, the most important job of a board in a public company, very frankly, is appointing the right CEO. Okay, so in a sense. Sometimes you only have to make the right decision once every five or five to ten years. <laughs> but it's the most. But if you make decision. if you make that decision wrong, wow, uh, you're going to be very very busy. Okay, I mean you've been the chairman of the most iconic companies in Singapore: Singapore Airlines, DBS, among many others. What do you think makes you great at being a chairman? Now, first of think? all, I don't know that you. I don't know that anybody's great at being a chairman, but I'll tell you what I try to do. All okay. Right? I think this uh, where you can, you want to select board members who are committed, who are willing to speak their minds. The last thing you need if you're trying to run a successful company is everybody who agrees with you. Right. Yes. But at the same time, you want them to have the skill to be able to do that in a collegiate fashion. Now that's <laughs> harder to find than you think. Collegiate fashion. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The second thing you want to do is you want to make sure that you can challenge management without making them feel that you're on the opposite side. In other words, they must feel that you're on the same side as they are, yet challenge them. Challenge them. How do you do that? Ah, uh, <laughs> how do you do that? I think it's a skill that you develop with time. What's the linguistics behind that? The linguistics behind that is it's actually stems partly from the culture that you try to build in an organization. Um, you know, when you're talking to the people like yourself, the VC yeah. business, yeah. it's all very financial. Yeah. But the truth of the matter that is that uh, a real competitive advantage of companies in the long run, a fair amount of it rests with the culture in which the organization is built. Every company in the world, for example, tells you that customer service is number one. 99% of them don't mean it. You know that. You deal with banks. Yeah. Yeah. They have some of the poorest customer service scores. It's true. You still do it because it's an utility you can't do without. Yeah. Yeah. But they will always say that they they have focused on customer yeah. service. It can't be carried out. What is what do you feel is the most challenging situation you've ever had to oversee as a chairman without naming 
like mm. names or anything okay. of the sort of we situation. Sh- we should name it, right? I mean, let's not put him in the spot. Uh, okay. No, no, no. Ooh. Because you, you sometimes yeah. when you name these things, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Be, oh, yeah. you can. Okay, people are guilty by association. Yes. Okay. Let's not right. put them noted. Duly yeah. noted, sir. Okay. See, good chairman already. Good chairman. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll tell you what is the most challenging thing. Sometimes when you're beginning to expand, for example, in uh, this part of the world, the standard of governance is not the same everywhere. Okay. okay. So here's a real, this is a real example. Okay. I thought I had hired a really, really good person to run China. And then I started hearing, he was head of sales for all China. Then I started hearing that he was getting kickbacks from distributors. So I had it investigated and the company, at that time, the company was a startup, essentially, you know, it's just about getting to revenue break, what we would call cash flow break even. And he was responsible for 40% of the company's revenues. My God. So I fired him and I explained to the whole organization why I had to do that. It took me another 18 months to get back to the same revenue level. Then why fire him? Was it a matter of principle? It's a matter of or principle. Was it a matter of risk mitigation? Because some people are very pragmatic about no, it, right? No, I, I will wow. not be pragmatic about something wow. like this. See? You know what? Next it's time, just the wrong thing to yeah, communicate. Yeah. And I made it an example for the entire company because then I think I can worry less about this issue going forward. That's right. it, it wasn't in a long-term investment in the company in, in that sense because from that one data point, you communicated what the culture of the company was supposed to be. Exactly. And for the next 20 years, I didn't have a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there you go. I love that. You like that. But staying on your chairman, at the moment, one of your current roles is uh, chairman of Singapore Stock Exchange. And bring it back to, you know, we're all investing in tech. But, you know, Hien and... Visuals like portfolio companies are deciding to go to other markets to float. What do you think Singapore can do to persuade people, to persuade the tech companies, the high growth companies, to actually stay here, list in Singapore on your exchange? First of all, I'm going to answer your question in two parts, right? Yeah. Hien and Vishal. They're short term. <laughs> they only they it's, only want maximum value at the IPO because then they're out. Mm. Well, maybe it's to not. ask for your advice, which is we're not public markets yeah, people. Yeah, we I know. Gotta, we gotta cash so out. your so your interest your interest at that juncture is not aligned with the company mm, because yeah. the company would like to exist and continue to grow. Mm. When you list on a foreign exchange, this is my view. After a while, after that initial flurry, perhaps the first year or so, unless that happens also to be your market and you're known, it is a steady decline to, Mm. unless it is really unique, 
how do you continue to capture their attention when the people who are on the investment side have never experienced your product or your service or whatever the heck it is? Good point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's part one, part Michael. One. I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> so, so the second part of the que yeah. question is, yeah. So are we able going to are we going to be able to com combat the what do you call the need for the VC to maximize their exit prices, we can't combat that. But what we are hoping to be able to do is that for the companies that are better known in this part of the world, to make the exchange a more sustainable long-term growth platform for these companies after that event. Do you think one of the issues is with the depth of the capital markets under SGX yeah. and how do we Absolutely. You know, attract that capital to come um, in. I'm, I'm, that's a, that's a problem are, for the CEO my, you are going to appoint. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure my colleagues are already working on that. <laughs> I mean, Boonhui, one of the reasons why I became a venture capitalist and an entrepreneur for that matter was as a Singaporean, I always wish that we were much more entrepreneurial, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I feel like this is my way of changing Singapore society. What do you think is, uh, do you think the new generation, do you worry that the new generation is going to be very similar to the older generation? Because I don't feel like they have the same risk profile, right? Singapore's no, not like what Singapore was in the 70s. Let's be honest, it's, it's, not un it's not necessarily unique to Singapore. I mean, this happens to all organizations. Sometimes, you know, when organizations become wildly successful, yep. one of the most dangerous things that happened in my view is that they become more interested in protecting what they've already done yeah. and therefore become a lot more risk averse going forward. Yeah. Not taking a risk when you are successful is, is the, the risk. biggest risk <laughs> correct. that an organization can take. Totally agree. Right. And that's why we exist as venture capitalists, because at the end of the day, we almost are the people who sometimes can be seen like the outsourced risk perspective, right? The no. big company will yeah. then, no? I, I, I know that you like to believe that. I'm a venture capital, capitalist yeah. too. We seed the companies, but we don't have the stamina to build a company over 20, 30, 50 years. No, um, what I'm saying is that we build it for like three to five years and then these risk-averse public companies, and by the way, they're risk-averse because of the shareholder pressure, then buy the product. And so, you know, you look at Oracle, right? They won't necessarily start up a new SaaS company, or whatever, they'll just look at all the companies that are in that space, hopefully pick the most mature one and then buy that and then leverage the distribution. So that's their way of avoiding this, uh, you know, uh, lack of innovation and they just become big distribution machines. Mm -hmm. And that's a legitimate business model. Oh, I, 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 I don't disagree with that. Mm. Okay. But that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that kind of a formula can succeed at infinitum. Mm. In fact, you see that a, a lot of that now in the pharmaceutical industries, mm. right? The big farmers have great distribution. Yeah, they just buy. So they just buy all the startups. Yeah. Most VCs are risk averse. Yes. They, they do not, they... No. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've talked that. You haven't got revenue or can you come back in six or nine months when you've developed a little bit? 
more. I mean, it, it's VCs. If you look in the market, and that everybody's moved upstream. Yeah, it's one of my biggest bugbears, especially in Southeast Asia. Is all the funds are going later and later stage on the whole, and there's yeah. not as many early stage funds. You know, no, you've it, got visual. You've, you've still got. You, you, yeah, we have both you, sides. Have of both the, sides, we have both of, sides the of the equation, but but most funds, even if they say they're doing both sides of the equation, fundamentally they're saying they're doing seed just to to give voice to it, but not actually actively investing. And it's because it's because they're they're, they're becoming more risk averse. The obvious wins are no longer there. Well, I love your view on this, Bunhui, because I, oh, we I'm actually very happy that's happening. Yes, because yeah. you know the last the last thing I want to do is to have people compete with me for seed and angel investments. True, we think about it the same way. You know, like we were discussing this on the last pod, where there's this there's this sort of like meme that was going around, and it's true, which is like hard times leads to strong leaders or you know people. Strong people build great countries, companies. Great countries, companies lead to weaker people because you're comfortable, which then lead to hard times. And so I think it's like part of it is also cyclical, right? Like, so you have an entire bull run that's taken place in 10 years. People drift to where the capital is more abundant and easy because it's easier to deploy. Or you get more fees from it as well if you're managing larger amounts of capital. Weeds away people from the earlier stages. And now I think the cycle is just going to repeat itself, right? And it's just going to probably go back down and newer seed and early stage funds are just going to come up, come about because people can't raise that much capital anymore. And I think that's the reason why periodically a reset is really important. Have you seen, what happened during the last reset in your experience? Because you were invested not just in the Singapore markets, but you invested in Silicon Valley and obviously through market cycles. So you've seen this time and time again. And so when you look at what's happening now and you see what's happening, not well, in Southeast Asia and Singapore, but also in the broader, in the other countries in which you're investing. What are you thinking as an investor and seeing this having played out? Well, I think, you know, no two episodes are ever exactly the same. Okay. I, th- I would say that, you know, this sounds terrible, but I think if I have to choose, serendipity is always my first choice. <laughs> <laughs> You know, yeah. everybody is going to tell you how smart they are. Yes. But I'd rather be lucky. Yes. So the truth of the matter is that, you know, my first experience starting in the 1980s, my first experience with this bull run was that in that whole episode that led up to 2000. Remember? Yeah. Our yeah. dot com crisis. The long one. It didn't feel right to me. The bull run? Yeah. It didn't feel right. It got to the point <laughs> where it the numbers to me didn't make any sense but so i was quite fortunate because um i managed to exit a fair amount of stuff in 2000 then i didn't do anything because i'm an individual right i don't have fun life yes so then i didn't do anything for the next three to four years what what gave you the idea or what what in was it instinct that drove you to say, hmm, time to this sell. may be time to sell? Because people instinct. don't have that discipline, it's I feel like. No, it, is, it is an instinct. Because I can't, I can't reduce it to numbers for you. I mean, you can to a certain extent, right? When, uh, when things are trading- When multiples start when, to- Yeah, when <laughs> things are crazy. trading at multiples of eyeballs, doesn't necessarily always feel right, right? Or I, mean, I can still remember. Oh, oh, when, oh, when the taxi driver tells you the stock tip, then you go, yeah. Okay. okay. 
you know? Oh. When people say, you should raise money now because it's free. <laughs> that's what I heard like two thousand six thousand seven. They're like, yeah. just raise, it's pretty much free. You don't have to, you know, it's like, I'm like, okay. So, yeah. How do you then, I mean, this was in your context as an, as an individual investor, you have complete control over your capital that you're deploying to these companies and you can drive and make decisions on instinct. So now that you're running and part of a venture capital firm, you're the chairman of Altara Ventures, it's institutionalized in many ways. How do you it indoctrinate is. that instinct into the way partners think about investing and exiting companies? It's such a hard one. It is a very difficult thing to do. I mean, look, we have fiduciary obligations if you're a fund manager, right? Yes. You do, right? Yes, I do. Yep. This boot I do. By the way, yours is too. I just check with Shane. Can you, said, can you yes. hold your mic any harder? You're kind of grabbing hold of it like it's going to run away I'm from you. Adjust it higher. That's all. <laughs> and so, as part of that, you build a model for the business that you're looking at. But Kian builds a model, everybody else will build a model. Actually, first and foremost, Shane builds the model, not me. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but then, what, okay, so then but, your point But being, every other firm will build them a model. Yeah, okay. Right? Yeah. And if everybody just bases it on the models, all of your models are upward and sloping to the right. This is true. Yeah. Have you ever built a model that isn't upwards and sloping to the right? Mm. Tell me one. No. Exactly. Yeah. So at the end of the day, if you're building a model, and firm B is building a model and firm C is building a model. Don't you think you're all going to pretty much, and they're all smart people, right? Yeah. You're all pretty much going to come to similar conclusions, right? Well, yeah. I'll, I'll challenge that because sometimes you, you don't invest because it doesn't move, <laughs> you know, it doesn't look like it moves fast enough, right? So Mark yeah. Andreessen has said, let's not focus on what goes wrong, but what happens if it does go right? So a lot in venture is you, you don't invest because, you know, whilst the company is great, the founder's great, the opportunity is not big enough. Now, whether you actually, it actually moves to the right and in that level of aggression, that's up to God in venture capital. But if it doesn't even have a fighting chance, You're making then don't. the point I'm about to make, which is that all of these models will lead you to what I call similar conclusions. Yes. And the difference eventually is your judgment of the business mm -hmm. and the people who are involved in it. Which is instinct. Which is instinct. instinct. Okay, so this is great. And which is so instinct I'm, and, no, it so is, I'm going to, and it is having done it a hundred times. Okay, yeah. You know what, I love or this. Or 200 times. No, I love this. But that's the question, right? which this. is how do you institutionalize yeah. instinct? Yeah, how do you institutionalize instinct? You can't. Yeah. Uh, that's, mm. why, that's why in the, in the look, how, even, for you, pro, even for professional managers of investments, yeah. right? Yeah. 75% of them don't meet a market beta. Okay, now here comes the juicy question, which is you've got these LPs and they look at your track record, they look at it and they try to do everything else other than to say, we should invest in, you know, 500 global because Vishal has the instinct and he's awesome because clearly They've got all their, you know, but ways of thinking. That's what they should be doing. Oh, 
You see, that's uh, this is why. And I, I, I don't mean just Vishal. Yeah, <laughs> anyone, anyone with it. See, anyone yeah, who this has is a good because record. I'm just gonna replay this episode to Shane, and then the next time I really want to invest in the company, like I just invested in Lucens. Okay, I love Min Han. I think it's the right space. Shout out to the guy, but it was very instinctual, and I had to fight the team. I'm like, we did all the analysis. We did so. I guess we do that to make sure yeah. it is there. But I'm telling you yeah, now, so, this is so. You know, that's the thing about the industry, right? You got to be absolutely certain. You can build a model to justify whatever decision yeah. you want to make. <laughs> yeah. It's but true. it's also one of the sometimes yeah, what the fun true. part is about being an angel investor. Yeah, but that's, yeah. Yeah, is you can go yeah. purely based on your that's instinct. Why, that's why. That's exactly. That's why he's yes. an angel. That's, yeah. the, that's the part yeah. that I like. Yeah. 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 In our defense, by the time we get to Series A, Series B, a lot more data, more data, more data. But still, you know, I want to just go cut fuel. It's, it's fair. But it's why I stick to early stage, even yeah. at Cocoon. I I do pre-seed and see because I like yeah. the fact that I yeah. can ignore all data because it's all fake <laughs> and I can go purely well, on instinct. Sometimes there's no data to go on. Right? Exactly. Right. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. All it is is assumptions. It's kind of like, this is what we hope to do. It's but fun. it's down to the people. It's funny when we get our early stage practice and growth stage practice, yeah. people in a room together, they look like Aliens I literally wish Jessica was here right now because Jessica runs our growth practice just to cut. I, we should we should just get her recorded into this thing. No, this is very interesting, right? So, have you have there been situations where you feel your instinct was sort of like countered by models and logic <laughs> that, and it's not served it well. Like we can be in an investment bureau, setting, it can the be in a bureaucrat stop when we from investing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. How, how do you debate that? Like, how do you have that conversation? Because you know? it's my own capital. Oh, okay. Okay. There we go. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the lesson: yeah, have yeah. complete control okay. over your own capital. The lesson is: when I grow up, I want yeah, to be I just that's like right. you. Exactly. <laughs> that is that is exactly it. That's a hard one, yeah. and I think we struggle with it a lot of times. And honestly, and let's just be very real, right? Like. Yeah. Many a times, I feel even when we are fundraising for our funds, you're really trying to justify in many different ways decisions based on instinct and experience by saying that, you know, this is, there's a pro, I mean, processes are important. It's important to have the models. It's important to do the legwork. But at the end of the day, I feel when it comes down to crunch time, you're making the decision based on your gut, instinct, judgment. Yeah, yeah, no. Experience of no. having done this a bunch of times. I, I and remember, you could, you're still, you can still be wrong many and times. And you'll still be wrong most yes. of the time. Yeah. Yes. You know, like it's, <laughs> I'm, you know, if you look yeah. at the angel portfolio or something like that, or even our early stage portfolio, it's, you'll get a bulk of them wrong, but that's not how you make money in venture also, yeah. right? No, I'm just saying when we do expert calls and these kind of things, I always tell the team, they're an expert only because they've been an expert of things that have happened in their past 20 years of their lives and be careful right? Because they might be actually the people. And don't forget, all these people on expert calls, they're doing it for the money. But it's still a valid data you point. You pay people to do that? Yeah, like, we was Michael, it's the beauty of fees, management <laughs> fees. You need to get on board. Could get on board with this thing. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, what do you think? Do you agree or disagree? Experts. Sometimes you go talk to experts so that you want to hear. You should do it, but it doesn't mean you listen to them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Let me give you a, uh, let me tell you a story about this, okay? Oh. You know the Hewlett Packard made handheld calculators? Yes. Yes. Had one. Wildly successful, right? Okay. 
this started because engineers in those days use slide rules. So anybody remember a slide rule? Everybody here is too young. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know what a slide rule is? Felicia is Googling slide rule. <laughs> yeah. Do you even know what a slide rule is? I actually do know a slide do? rule. I actually, but that's it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and Bill Hewlett, when electronics and the first Intel microprocessor, the 8080, 32 bits or whatever the heck it was, was developed, says, wouldn't it be a neat idea to have an electronic version of the slide rule. And of course wow. he's the owner of the he's the owner of the company, right? <laughs> well, I mean it's already a public company, but he he's still a large owner of the company. And when Bill says that, engineers go off and go to work on this thing, right? So they go to work on this thing and the first HP calculator that came out was the HP sixty five. Yeah, that's a slide rule. Uh. And I have a I have a mint version of one of the best <laughs> like one day I'm gonna auction it. <laughs> so they built one. I kept Bill pretty happy. But no one in the company wanted to launch it as a product because it was going to be this is back in 1970. <laughs> it was going to be north of a thousand US dollars when that slight rule. Yeah was 10 30 bucks, US dollars. 30 bucks, yeah. <laughs> so nobody in the company wanted to launch this thing. <laughs> but Bill says, well, I like it. And I think it's a lot faster than the slight rule. I don't have to fiddle around with it. Um, we're gonna launch it. Nobody in the company wanted responsibility for this. So what do they do? They hired an expert. I, I can probably, I, I, can, I, I can probably tell you the name of the consulting company because you will all recognize it. So I probably should protect the guilty. So the consulting company goes out and goes, does all of their work. And this, this isn't a consulting company like the ones that you might be thinking of. This is what I call a scientific consulting oh, company. Okay. 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 Went out and did a great report. The total worldwide addressable market for this product is 12,000 units. That's it. That's it. Wow. Total worldwide demand for this product is 12,000 units. Okay. So then what happened? Goes back to Bill, this is the reason we can't do this. Okay. Our expert says so, 12,000 <laughs> units. And then, the consultants. Did, and then what did Bill say? Launch it. Wow. Oh. And then what happened? Well, the rest is history. The man. rest is history. You know, and the reason I know this was because I was responsible for building those calculators here in Singapore. Oh, wow. So I'm just at, Singapore at one history. point. Huh? Yeah. Bit of Singapore gonna, history. I'm going to quote history. that anytime Shane disagrees with my gut decision that I do with no data. Now, <laughs> is, now is that the only yeah. example of what I call a technical consultant being totally wrong? Hmm. That isn't the only example. Many times. Right? IBM had a IBM had a study for the number of supercomputers that the world needed to HP sixty five, right? See? Yeah, okay. Well, Felicia is, somebody uh, <laughs> flashing Felicia the flashing us yeah. photos of no, the HP calculator. Happy look goes over Punfui's face. <laughs> well, the truth of the matter is that it actually helped me a lot. Yeah. Because I built it 
work for worldwide distribution in Singapore. Mm. And at one point in time, the Singapore division for which I was responsible for mm. was 20% of corporate profits. Wow. There you go. <laughs> so serendipity, remember that? <laughs> <laughs> Let's I, change, I, let's, I, let's I was change. in the right place at the right time. Let's change tack in the interest of time and ask a few more personal questions about Bunhui. Or I, you're dying? Okay. I have a, I have a, I have a couple that I want okay. right, maybe, maybe to maybe maybe just dive into Freddy, this one. Freddie, he, so keep going. Maybe, Freddy, maybe just yeah. like you know, it's interesting, right? Like I, I remember reading that there's some like Vinod Kosla was who invest who invested in like a bunch of you know the biotechnology companies in the early days said that he didn't like people that were experts in their field when they invested in them because they came with very set views on what the future looks like and how things are to be built. What's your philosophy towards you know investing in people inside industry versus outside industry when building you know a company in a certain space? Okay. People inside an industry are always blindsided. You can never expect disruption from people within an industry. I love that. Hien, Michael, do you guys agree? This okay. Um, you know, I've also heard that like it took a non-hotelier, Adrian Zecker, to do Aman, mm. right? To revolutionize the hotel business. It took. But how about Bunhui? About a person who's in the industry, but only for a certain short period of time, unhappy, and then come out. That would be Possible. fine because the person's thought okay. yet yeah, hasn't been okay. there yeah. long hasn't enough to be fight. And there are some industries where where the disruption has to come from a different mindset from within the industry. Yeah. I give yeah. you, I mean, I give you a, finance is a good example. If you don't understand the details of how money is being moved around, you're unlikely to be able to come up with a system that actually improves on it, mm. right? Another, for example, is that if you weren't inside a chip design company, that's right. How can you build a better chip? How can you build the <laughs> <a> next <laughs> chip? This, this is not something yeah. that you can do. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fair. Maybe like some rapid fire, like <sighs> best investment you've made in a startup. Like what? What's the what's the one that you were just like? This is the this was the best by far investment I've made. How do you in, define in best? What's best? Okay, that is a good best one. Best is a Financial okay. number. Let's do financial. MYC is okay, best. IRO, actual, no, actual no, no. Okay. best. Yeah. Which, is the, one, million to which is the one that you've enjoyed the most? Which one? That that's, a different most that's a different satisfying. question. Most yeah. let's, let's, Okay, let's start with best from the perspective of like MOIC. Ah, this is a very small investment. Okay. But the MOIC <laughs> was like 600 times. <laughs> I love it. Because it was a knowledge business. All okay. you needed was $25,000 to start <laughs> the whole company. <laughs> You're selling knowledge and information. But if you start with 25 and it's 500, well, it's decent. But, but still, <laughs> but still, like yeah. to get 600 times your capital is pretty, yes. it's yeah. pretty amazing. Okay, what Michael just asked, most enjoyable, sure. or the one that's brought you the most satisfaction. What is what that has been most enjoyable? Wow, that's a really tough question because first of all, I wouldn't do it if I wasn't going to enjoy it. Okay. But I'm not an intrusive. Don't get me wrong, I'm not an intrusive investor. I make a fair amount of investors. Yes, I always make myself available to the founders. Yes, but there are three classes of founders. <laughs> There's a class of founders who, after you they've taken your money. You hardly ever hear yeah. from them again. Yeah. Uh, 
my response to that is very simple. You're an idiot. When the next they raise the next round of money, I'm not there because I'm. I'm You've never heard from them. You're not I, I, I didn't. I'm not. I'm not just doing it because. I provide capital. Yes. I'm genuinely interested in how the company develops and yes. stuff like that. I enjoy that part of it mm. a lot more, and I don't get it from the things, so I don't follow. Right? Yes. Then there's another group of founders, which on the extreme end, they would like a call every week, <laughs> and I'm fine with that. Okay, I'm actually fine with it. Believe it or not. <laughs> wow. And some will be once a month, and some will be once a quarter. Yeah. But you're engaged. Yes. Okay? Yeah. Or, and there will be others who, before they make a major move, they call will it. say, "Can I ha- can I have yeah. a couple of hours? Oh, that this is really serious. Right. A couple of hours is real time. <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not a ten minute phone call, right? Yeah. yeah. That's very that's very yeah. costly. So, yeah. but I would do it. Yeah. Right? Existential then, moments of the company. Yeah. You see, so when you spread all of that out, then I would say that you know, the truly engaged, the ones that you're truly engaged in, is usually twenty five, thirty percent. I think for for the bulk of it, it's all right. You know, yeah. they they do their monthly reports, they do their quarterly reports, whatever it is. Then there's about fifteen or twenty percent that you never hear of until they next, they want to raise the next round of money or until they get into trouble. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so you know, one of the corollaries of what um, just happened is we talked a lot on the previous episodes about oh, you should raise money from angel investors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But people don't realize this is one of the reasons why angel investors do what they do. They yeah. want to stay engaged, right? Exactly. And yeah. you, you're just, just great. You know, I think this would be something because if very you're useful. not engaged, what's the point of? Well, they, yeah. You, what's the point of your yeah angel investment? And you might as well. It's true. Put it in a read, right? Well, I, okay. You're you're, 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 you're Bunhui. There are also angel investors who are, you know, maybe part-time people, and they want to just glorify it, or they think it's easy. And those people may be destructive to the, the entrepreneur, give bad advice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's also not a very good angel investor. Which is why we always say try and find really good angel investors. They make a whole difference, right? Yeah. Maybe yeah. one last one, which is what's the one that got away that sticks with you? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Nice. You know, the, I'm not the kind of person who looks backwards. Okay. So I find that a, a little bit hard to answer the question. Hard to answer. Oh, I, I can tell you that. I can tell you that. Caro. Oh. 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 Okay. So why did why did he pass at the time he met the founders? I didn't. After the meeting, uh, after the meeting, for whatever it is, he never made it ask. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. and I'm I'm not the, I'm not the kind of uh, yeah. I've already told you I'm not an intrusive investor. Yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah. So I make the investment that's and right. I leave it to the founder to decide how he wants to engage. Yeah. And my attitude towards this is that I've made that decision. Uh, I'm not going to call the person every month or every quarter to ask how things are going. I won't do that. Okay. Yeah. Shall we shift gears? Yeah, but just one quick question. Have you? <laughs> no, no, this, this is, is going to be. Yeah. All right. Okay. Okay. No, no, sorry. We, we can keep going. We can, yeah. we can keep going. It just could be one, a two hour blockbuster. <laughs> just two hours. So one, one It's going to cut down into Have one, you yeah. ever been uh, tempted to become a founder yourself? He he does. Oh, I he, am, he did start he did a VC found, fund. He, do, he did oh, start I, No, no, no. I, I, I don't quite know how to answer that question because um, I think I have. Um, I have a precision engineering company. <laughs> yeah, 
called Sunningdale. Yeah. Yes. That was started 30 plus years ago. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it started with nothing. It literally started with nothing. Okay. Mm. There you go. I did not know that. Yeah. That was on Wikipedia. <laughs> it was it was so it was on Wikipedia, it, but it in your defense, you, you didn't. It wasn't really clear that uh, when we started. Wait, it. What, yeah. hap- what happened to the company? It's still going. Oh, so, okay. okay. Wow. It's still, it's still, oh yeah. Still of course. Yeah. Okay. My, my fan- Are you how involved? My oh, fantastic investment. Simplistic. Now? Remember, they oh, went yes, to that's like right. you know we, 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 a how, lot of customers. Yeah. How how involved am I? Yes. Well, once every two weeks. <laughs> I sit down with the management team. Uh, every single month, I attend the business development okay. meetings. That is pretty involved. Okay. Uh, okay, every right. month, I attend the operations meeting. For 30 years. You know, we never really talked about this story, which is like what motivated you and prompted you to start Sunningdale? Like, what is it that I you saw at the time? I didn't I did quite well in Hewlett Packard. Yes. But I couldn't answer this question when I looked at myself in the mirror. Am I successful because I carry a card that says Hewlett Packard? Or could I be successful if I wasn't carrying a card that anyone recognized? So I decided to start something. That's fantastic. That is yeah. in- incredible. Yeah. What, and the space that Sunningdale was in is precision manufacturing? Precision. Plastics solutions. Precision plastic solution. What mm. what got you thinking about that space? Because it's one of those things. Uh, I'll be honest. I was looking for something that wouldn't be a fad. Okay. Okay. Where I was looking for something that was sustainable, yet would allow me to have an, a competitive advantage if I was good at it. So I'll give you another... Th- what I mean by that, right? For example, everybody has to eat. Yes. So the food industry is highly sustainable, <laughs> right? But it's very hard to build a competitive advantage. That's right. Unless you're willing to spend millions and millions of dollars building a brand. That's right. Which is why brand equity in these kinds of businesses are really important. Yeah. Well, I'm an engineer. I'm not a marketer. I know nothing about how you build a brand. But in precision engineering, I know that if my engineering abilities is better than somebody else, I can always sustain that edge. And it's a business that doesn't go away. You can build this product or that product, you're gonna require plastic parts of one form or the other. And if I can do that better than the next guy, that's not going to go away. And it's measurable. You can measure and the... You can measurable. It's well, okay. absolutely uh, measurable. But there are people in China, Korea, oh, Japan. Yes, yes, They yes. will eat you alive. You know, yeah, blah, yeah, blah. absolutely right here. And there was a time, it's a good thing that the China, uh, China had a one-child policy because now none of the children, all of, all <laughs> of the children... Of engineers. All of the children <laughs> want to be, want to be in finance. They want to work for banks or investment banks or venture capital fund. They're no longer competing with us. <laughs> uh, that was a period for 10 years when it was really tough. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 But, yeah. and this is a real story. Hmm. I had a lot of customers who came to me, American customers, 
European customers who came to me and says, you're charging me what? I can get this done. Here, look, I got this quote from this Chinese company for 30% less. You want my business? You got to match it. And these are really, really big companies and signing deals. Actually, in the business that we are in, on a global basis, we are quite large, considered quite large. But we are tiny, less than 1% of some of our customers. Mm. And I said, no, I can't do this. You know, I really like your business. You know our quality. You never have a problem. We never shut down your lines because of a poor quality part. That's worth something. But I cannot batch this for several important reasons. Number one, I pay all Chinese social security taxes as required. I don't cut that corner. If I'm prepared to fire that guy who's responsible for 40% of my sales, I'm not going to tell the Shanghai government that you know your, your 5% housing contribution, yeah. I'm going to do 3% and then somehow or other get away with it. I won't do that. Number two, you tell me that you're in support of some of these global standards. So your global standard says that I can work overtime for 60 hours. I work overtime for 60 hours. I don't cut that corner either. But my employees are unhappy because they actually want the overtime to make their total pay package back bigger. So what do I have to do? I have to increase their base pay so the 60 hours matches my competition. Yeah. <laughs> right. But their customers, they, it, these are your problems, Boonhui, not theirs. They are a problem for me. Mm. I agree with you. They mm. are a problem for me mm. because they want to appear white, <laughs> but they also want the Chinese prices. So I tell them, in such a situation, you should go to the Chinese company, right? Yeah. And if it turns out later on that they're working 84 hours a week overtime, that's your reputational damage. How many of them actually yeah. listened to you uh, after that impassioned speech? Yes. How many percent? I will that give you the greatest satisfaction that I have. <laughs> He's I finally this, answering your question, Michael. I told this, so I yeah. told the company, I think you should go. Yeah. But just understand this. I'm always ready to do, <laughs> do business, business with you. <laughs> Sometimes. So they went. Yeah. Of course, now it's a matter of face, right? And I've always instructed our salespeople, you just keep in contact with them. Yeah. So now I'm going to tell you the, the really satisfying part of the story. <laughs> One year later, they came back and said, we have a new project. Would you like to quote on it? And of course I said, of course. I already told you that, you know, we're always open. But I'm not going to be cheap. Oh, we understand that. You know, this is a small business. In that year, with their Chinese suppliers, their production line was shut down so many times mm. and it had never happened before. Mm. But we knew that. 
they know it. They know that we know it. <laughs> but then nobody can say but, to everybody. Uh, but nobody can say this because yeah. it's a question of faith. Yeah. So they yeah. said it's a new project. Oh. <laughs> okay, and it is a new project. To be fair with them. Okay. <laughs> then about a month later, they came back and said, you know, it's not very efficient to have our yeah. projects in two different suppliers. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Perhaps you should do it all. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, I'm perfectly happy to do that. But I said, but on two conditions. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Number one, I need to inspect all the tools that you're using because you can't make precision parts out of bad tools. Oh, because so, you have to ship the tools from the other production line over. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, we yeah. have to take over the project. Not everybody on the listener knows this process as intimately as you, sir. Yeah. So these are precision tools, the ones yeah. that got the molds. Yeah, they wear out after like 150,000, 200,000. Yeah. No, no, it's not just a question of they're wearing out. They may have, have been, been badly, badly designed, designed in the first place. So you're not going to take responsibility for that? Well, yep. not because it's not my tool. Because I was, didn't build it. It was done by the other vendor. Okay, yeah. cool. All right, okay. listeners are with you now. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, we all assume that they have. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so say okay, so we inspected the tools. Yeah, and we gave them a forty-page report and says we can't make the parts because the tools. To the precision, you yeah. have the tool, and to replace the tools. Now remember, this guy had gone away. Yeah, for what I call a pittance, <laughs> to rebuild the tool. Cost It'll you one point two million dollars. Two point five million dollars. Something like. See, I'm not bad. See, I yeah, I know yeah, tooling yeah. too. You know. Oh yeah. Oh. Yeah. Because yeah, unfortunately, you. we went through something which you know yeah. name withheld. <laughs> I cost you two point five million dollars, and by yeah. the way, when we make the parts, uh, this is the price. Yeah. Which was actually higher than the price when they left us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. You see. Well, so we finally took took us about forty five minutes, but now and yeah. they accepted it. Yeah. Oh, I love well that. Done. What a story! And they are not the only ones. <laughs> and you were being unreasonable, and that's why you're on this podcast. I wasn't I unreasonable. That. I was extremely, extremely reasonable. reasonable. <laughs> if you if, if you want to do unprofitable business, that's your business. Uh, but yeah. I won't do it. Okay, I love that. It's like it's it, you know like well, I think one of the lessons that you learned from this entire experience of this podcast is about principle-based leadership and decision making that I think has come across really really strongly uh through all of the stories that Boone has shared with us over here. One one question I have though, this sounds like it was a defining experience. When did you feel like it was time to transition out of running the company? Oh no, many many years ago uh the the this is a this is an SME yes. by any standard. Yes, but um, the average length of service, and you know, SMEs in Singapore complain all the time. You know, they can't get they can't get people. People don't stay with them. <laughs> da, 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 da. Right, but my CEO has been the CEO now for fifteen years, and my average length of service for C minus one. It's fifteen to twenty years. Wow! Yeah. yeah. So they know the business inside out. It's incredible. They know it better than I do. Did you Did you feel like once you satisfied these orders, built the company, you had proven that thing that you wanted to prove to yourself that you didn't need the HP card, and then after that, you're like, now on to the next chapter. 
Let me move no, on. Then you get busy with other things. You get distracted. Then someone in the some, go- some, someone, someone in the, the government, government calls no, you. No, 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 no. That's says, not Can it. you please that's be that's the chair of the same That's absolutely not it at all. You know, and you can't say no. Some of your colleagues say, "Let's start a venture capital fund." Yeah, yeah, That's probably more like it. Okay, I think that's a phenomenal war story for really having faith in your product and you know knowing that you can deliver and sticking to your guns i think that's something that you know any business person uh has gone through that if you are providing value to the customer yeah and the customer doesn't recognize pr- that maybe if he doesn't recognize it he'll recognize it later, later. <laughs> <laughs> he'll recognize it later and i think All for right. a lot of founders that's a yeah. really good lesson for them to take away yeah. from this because i think too many times they there's that struggle and they're like, we'll just cut our costs. And then I don't think anybody actually respects what they're doing. Or they're afraid to actually charge for their product, right? Or charge the right price for the product or even test. Like how many times have we had founders go like, I don't don't even believe and you you get them to do that. And then they go, oh my gosh, actually, actually I can charge for that amount of money. What has been the guiding light as you, you know, see your kids grow up? What are the few things you have tried to teach them? One, I think the most important thing for them is an understanding of values. I really think so. Yeah. I'm happy that they're all good people. Yeah. <laughs> all right. That's the only thing you can leave them with. And I've always told them, I'll pay for the education as far as you want to go, but that's the end of my duty. What do you feel is the, is there something that you feel you've sacrificed to get where you were in? And do you yeah, think success absolutely. has to come with sacrifice? Yeah, That's such a good question. Yeah, You know, look, let me start off by saying that I'm all for work-life balance. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? I don't know what that is. But I would have to tell you that I had absolutely no balance. Yeah. Wow. Yep. In hindsight, would you have? Yeah. Or is it just the personality, sir? Are you resigned to that fact? No, I'm not resigned to that fact. With perfect hindsight, could it have been different? I'm not so sure. Because I'm the kind of person who will either refuse to do it, or if I agree to do something, no matter how much I like it or dislike it, I will do it it to 110%. So I did that when I was... So I did this see a lot of the kids when I was working. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even now, I travel 50% of the time. Wow. But it's okay. Now they don't care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they've grown up, they've or got they, their own or lives. They come, or they come with you, you know? Yeah. You're quite famous for like, I think, family trip. Oh, yeah, family yeah, yeah. Now, now, of course, you know, now that I, now that I can afford it, you know, yeah. like <laughs> Yeah. Boon Hui, it's been an absolute pleasure. You're very welcome to be back on the Unreasonable Podcast, but thank you for your time and thank you for being so frank and candid and open. And uh, for the rest of you listeners, uh, we'll try and capture somebody as funny, wise, and illustrious as the Right Honourable Ko Boon Hui. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>